0: This is a podcast of First Presbyterian Church of Trenton, Michigan, a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify God by making, maturing, and multiplying disciples. For more information, check out fpchurch.tv. This morning's reading of God's good and holy word comes from Luke chapter 11, verses 14 through 26. Oh, and the kids may be dismissed to their classes. (laughs) Still working out it, guys. Luke 11, 14 through 26. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their hearts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. And then it goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first.
1: Good morning, First prize. If you have your copy of God's Word, keep it open there to Luke 11. We'll be picking up there after we pray. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, for the assembly of your people. We gather because you've called us to be yours. We gather because you are are so worthy of our praise. Lord, as we reflect upon your goodness and mercy, we're overwhelmed with joy and thanksgiving. Lord, we think about the fact that we are sinners. We were reminded that in our time of public confession. We're mindful of how easily, Lord, we are enthralled by the things of the world, and we choose the things of the kingdom of Satan versus the kingdom of God. And yet, Lord, in the midst of our sinning, right while we were in the very act, you sent Jesus into the world to die for sinners, to die for us. The good news of the gospel is astonishing. That Jesus didn't come to die for those who could clean themselves up or help themselves. Jesus came to die for sinners. Lord, we recognize our desperate need We recognize the overwhelming goodness of your love towards us. In the very act of our sin, Jesus came to die for us. Lord, we are grateful. We're thankful. We're joyful because of the goodness of Jesus. His righteousness that's been applied to us that even now as we pray, we know we can come boldly to the throne of grace and pray and know we're heard not because of ourselves, but because of him. Lord, I pray that as your people, as we gather around your word, that we would not be hard-hearted, that we would not be stiff-necked, that you would unblock our ears, open our eyes, soften our hearts. Help us to hear your word, Lord. Help us to be joyful. Help us to be thankful. Help us to want to praise you above everything else. Lord, we're mindful that there is a lot of noise in the world. There's a lot of things that fight for our attention and affection. But Lord, you and you alone are worthy. Transform our hearts, we pray, God. Use this time, this assembling together as a time where we are knit closer to you and to one another. And I pray that you would be glorified and honored in all that we say and do here. God, I pray that you protect my mouth, Lord, that I would not say anything more nor less than you've given me to say, but God, I pray that I would be faithful to the entirety of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name as we look for what you will do, trusting you because you are good and faithful. We pray this in Jesus' name and God's people said, Amen. Growing up in the state of Michigan, there's a clear line of demarcation. You're either a University of Michigan fan or a fan of that other school called Michigan State. But one thing's unified us, and that's everyone hates Ohio State. Amen? <laughs> Interesting enough, when I was growing up, my brother went to the University of Michigan. I attended many games. I got to hang out with a lot of the athletes, and I came very close in the sense of, of, of affection towards the University of Michigan. But... When I married Amanda, I was marrying someone who came from another household. And I don't just mean down the street. I mean people that were affectionate and passionate about the Spartans. You can imagine the divide the first time I saw that she really was cheering for the Spartans to win when they played Michigan. You can imagine the tension in the home. I couldn't wait to start having children so I could begin to bring the balance of power to my side. <laughs> Things went well. Noah and I, we wore our maize in blue. But then Hannah was born. Hannah chose the green and white. Then, Sophia, the tiebreaker. She would be the one to unbalance our household. But in true youngest girl fashion, she realized the power she had. <laughs> she played both sides of the fence well. In fact, she would put her loyalty up for sale. <laughs> All depending on what she could get. Truth of the matter is, many people in Michigan are very close and lealined really to Sophia. They have no real loyalty to either team. They don't really care who wins, whether it's U of M or Michigan State. That's just some form of man's distinction and division. But our text in Luke chapter 11 tells us there is a division and distinction that matters to the utmost. There's a division and distinction that matters because we can only be on one side or the other. Listen to Jesus' words in verse 23. Whoever is not with me is against Me. Friends, don't miss those words. And Jesus is saying there is a line of demarcation. You're either on My team or you're against Me and My team. Very clearly we see there are two kingdoms in this world. Two kingdoms at work. The kingdom of God versus the kingdom of Satan. Of the devil. The Bible actually goes forward to describe the devil as the ruler of this world in places like John 14 and John 12. Calling Satan the ruler of this world. It means that Satan has some sense of authority. Understand, Satan has seized this authority illegally. He seized it from our first parents, Adam and Eve, by force. Satan seized it at the fall through temptation. Adam and Eve were, were given rule over this world as, as to be ultimately kings and queens of, of God's creation. They were going to act on God's behalf here, naming the animals and ruling well, but sinned into the world. And Satan seized power. Friends, Satan is strong. Scripture describes him as one who brings hardship and suffering into the world. We see the effects of this all around us each and every day of our lives. In our text, we see the power of Satan. Beginning at verse 14, I draw your eyes and it says, there it says, now he was casting out a demon that was mute. I draw your attention to those few words of verse 14 to show you that there was a great battle between Jesus and the demon between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. Jesus stepped in, didn't he? As you read that verse 14, it it begins with the word now. We need to remember that Jesus has set his eyes and affection upon Jerusalem. Jesus was going there for one purpose and that was to die for sinners. But as Jesus was going... As he took his steps, now he was casting out a demon that was mute. And when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke. These are important words as it draws our attention to the tension and the struggle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. Satan. Jesus fought many of these battles. We remember early in Jesus' beginning of his ministry that there in the the desert, in the wilderness, Jesus was tempted by the devil, according to Luke 4. Jesus, in fact, healed a demon-possessed man on the Sabbath and it created all kinds of questions and rumors. Or how about the fact that Jesus cast out of one man a legion of demons, according to Luke 8. Jesus has constantly been engaged in the battle between the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of Satan. But there in verse 14, as Jesus was fixed to go to the cross, the place of great battle, he takes the time to minister to a needy man, possessed by a demon and made mute. Jesus is doing something spectacular here Jesus is reclaiming what is his from the one who seized it illegally friends don't miss that because it shows the importance that each person plays in the eyes of Christ on his way to die for the sins of the world by dying on the cross Jesus stops to heal a man who was bound up with a spirit and unable to speak Jesus is reclaiming what is His. And in the midst of it, Jesus shows His strength. Yes, it's true, Satan is strong, but Jesus is stronger. We see it as Jesus casts out the demon and the mute man can now speak. I find it interesting that Luke puts this part of the story right here following Jesus teaching the disciples to pray. He clearly is showing the line of demarcation that the disciples of Jesus, the the people of God, they're to cry out and pray, Our Father. But even in the midst of that, there are those whose lips are seized and silenced, unable to cry out, not knowing God is their Father. But Jesus claims His own. Because Jesus is stronger than Satan. Jesus casts out the demons. And you can imagine the words of praise that are uttered from the man who is mute. As he has been freed. His prayers of praise. His celebration. His joy. Shouldn't everybody be celebrating? Surely that's what we would expect. Friends, I draw your attention to the very end of verse 14. After the mute man spoke, notice what it says, the people marveled. Surely they did. Surely they celebrated the victory of Jesus over the demonic world. Who wants to be put in bondage? Who wants to be owned of Satan? Who wants a monster like him to rule? But friends, sadly, not everyone marveled. Verse 15 goes on to say, But some of them said, He cast out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. Verse 16 goes on to say, While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign. What clearly Luke tells us is mixed in the crowd were antagonists and skeptics who even in the face of seeing Jesus free a man who was in bondage to a demon, couldn't give Jesus glory. Wouldn't give Jesus glory. Many rejected him by giving his glory to another. Notice the term Beelzebub. It's a heathen god. In 2 Kings chapter 1, it's defined and given as one of the heathen gods that was worshipped. But the Jews took that name and actually applied it to Satan himself. And so when the people are gathered there, and they're robbing Jesus of his glory and giving it to this heathen god by the name of Beelzebub, the Israelites understood they were actually giving praise to Satan Friends, this is a perfect picture of the increasing opposition Jesus faced from the moment that he set his eyes on Jerusalem to die. The world was pushing against him. There was rejection and hostility to even displays of his power. Skepticism and testing. As people pushed back and grumbled with unbelieving hearts. It forces us to ask the question, How have we seen the power of Jesus? And how have we responded? Friends, I've walked with this church for a number of years. And over the 18 years that I've been here, I've heard the stories of those who've been freed from spiritual bondage. Those who've experienced healing and forgiveness. Those who've come into the kingdom with gladness. I've seen it, the tears of joy what about you? How have you personally seen the power of Christ in your life? How have you responded? To whom have you given glory? See, Jesus responds to these accusations. The skepticism to those who would antagonize him. Jesus responds, he first explains that if it's by the power of the devil that Satan's kingdom is divided and therefore no divided kingdom can stand. He says this in verses 17 and 18, saying it's ludicrous to believe that the devil is working against the devil. And yet, that's what many would prefer to believe. Rather than giving glory and honor to Jesus, they would rather give glory and honor to Satan. But to the skeptic, Jesus says, You who are looking for more signs, look at my actions. They're proofs that the kingdom of God has come. Look at verse 20. Jesus says, But if it is by the finger of God that I've cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Notice that phrase, the, the finger of God. Jesus isn't saying something new and trendy. Jesus isn't giving us some coffee cup verse. Jesus is actually quoting the Old Testament. What's interesting about who is he quoting is he's not quoting believers, but unbelievers. This phrase comes from the magicians in Pharaoh's house. If you don't know the story of the Exodus, the people of God were in bondage to the Egyptians. And God raised up Moses to to free the people from their slavery and their bondage. Moses, in many ways, is a type of Christ who's come to free the people of God from their bondage of sin and slavery to the devil. And what Moses begins to do is display God's power through various signs of plagues. But it's on the third plague. The magicians who had been mimicking everything that Moses had done to show that they too have power, were unable to mimic what Moses had done. And in Exodus chapter 8, verse 19, these Egyptian magicians confessed to Pharaoh, "This is the finger of God. Only God can do this. Friends, what's so astounding in Luke chapter 11 is the comparison between the heathen magicians of Pharaoh who were at least willing to give God credit for His work versus the Israelites who were gathered there who were supposed to be looking for the Messiah and yet rejected Christ and His power, preferring rather to give the glory to Satan. Do you see the tension? Do you see the irony? Does it disgust you? It should. That's what Luke is trying to do is help us to see how ugly the power of Satan is. Because it captures the eyes and the hearts of people who should know better. And Jesus is in there saying the fingerprint of God The hand of God is at work because I am here. The kingdom is now present and Satan will be overthrown. And to declare this and prove this, I will defeat Satan again and again and again till ultimately I defeat him on the cross. And that's exactly what Jesus did. As you walk through the Gospels, you see Jesus defeating Satan again and again and again. With every temptation, with every struggle, Jesus wins. Jesus makes it abundantly clear that He has brought the reality of the kingdom with power. The Apostle Paul, wanting to clean everything up for us later readers, says in the book of Galatians chapter 4, but when the fullness of time, Notice that phrase, the fullness of time, when time was most pregnant, when it was ready to give birth. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, for what purpose? To redeem those who were under the law. So they might receive adoption as sons. Jesus came to bring salvation. Jesus came to bring deliverance from Satan and the bondage of the world. And this is what Jesus means when he says, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Believe the good news about me, Jesus says. It's here. It's present with you. My actions prove it. My victories show it. Believe. See, when Jesus came, He inaugurated the kingdom. And Jesus was ultimately moving things for the reason why He came. He would take back all that Satan has stolen. As strong as Satan is, Jesus is stronger. And the reader, as they read this text, is forced to ask the question, Do I know that power? Have I experienced that deliverance? Do I know that kind of Jesus and His kingdom? Has it changed my life? Jesus, wanting to make sure His people asked those questions, gave an illustration. The illustration is found in verses 21 and 22 of a strong man. A strong man who is the devil A strong man who's guarded and ready. Notice he's not sleeping. He's not lazy. he's He's not unfocused. No, the devil is strong and guarded and ready. And yet there's one who is stronger who comes. And who is that? Jesus. Jesus comes to overtake him. Jesus comes to take away Satan's spoils. That's what verses 21 and 22 tell us. They tell us that Jesus and his kingdom are superior to the kingdom of Satan. That the power of Jesus' kingdom is greater than Satan. Satan's strong, but he's not omnipotent. For only God and God alone is omnipotent. Christian, do you know what that means for your life? Yes, the the enemy can bring hardship and difficulty, trials and conflict. But Jesus overcomes. Victory is found in Jesus. Jesus has come, and Jesus is stronger than our greatest foe. Jesus has come to redeem. Jesus has come to liberate. Jesus has come to free. To free us from that giant Satan. Satan. To free us from doubting castle, to free us from all of the difficulties and hardships we could imagine in this world, Jesus has come to unmute our mouths so that we can give praise to Him. And where is this ultimate victory found? But on the cross. Is that not why Christians wear the cross on their necks? Is that not why Christians put crosses in their churches? Is that why would Christians see the cross as the place of victory, not defeat? Our redemption has been proven at the cross. The testimony of that victory is seen in the resurrection. That death could not hold Him down because He won. Jesus is stronger than our greatest enemy, Savior. Friend, Scripture is filled with this truth. The book of Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, says, By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all its legal demands, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. It was there on the cross that Jesus put Satan to shame. Or how about Hebrews chapter 2 beginning at verse 14? He himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver over all those who have fear of death. That's why Jesus came. But I think John puts it so simply in 1 John 3 verse 8 where he says the reason the Son of God appeared Was to destroy the works of the devil. Friends, do you know the good news and deliverance of Jesus? As you sit back and you hear this, how has it changed your lives? It's not just information, it's transformational. It should impact the way we sing and celebrate, it should impact the way we live and make choices to know that we're brought into the kingdom of God, through the cross of Christ, and Satan is defeated. But I guess the question is, do we know that power? Do we know that kingdom? Have we experienced that freedom? See, to those who understand the bondage of sin... To be saved from it is a great celebration. To those who understand the ugliness and the debauchery of rejecting God, to be given a warm heart of affection towards Him is glorious. But friend, what about you? Do you know that victory? Do you know that Christ... See, what Jesus is really asking in this question is, who are you serving? He says it in a form of a statement in verse 23 where He says, whoever is not with Me is against Me. Either you're for the kingdom of God or you're giving glory to the power of Satan. Friends, this is a big deal. As those who were gathered there were Israelites, the people of God, And they were forced to come to terms with the kingdom. Which kingdom would they side with? They saw his power. And they had to make a choice. But unfortunately, many chose to give Jesus' glory to another. To Satan. You say, that's well and good, Aaron. That's a a great story. But friend, I want to tell you something. That's not a story of the past that's a reality of the present that is still a problem today and i'm not referring to those out there but to those in churches today those who should know better but rather than giving glory to god give glory to satan you say how do they do that well friend they do it They rob the glory of Christ when they give that glory to individuals, such as celebrity pastors. They rob the glory from Christ when they give changes and and victories numerically to cultural schemes, such as the latest fads and trends. They rob the glory from Christ when they lean on pragmatic systems such as do whatever works rather than let's obey God's Word. Do you see it? Churches everywhere rob the glory from God and give it to Satan when they don't understand that the power is Jesus. Friends, this is a big deal. Because according to Jesus, there are only two kingdoms We're either with Him or we're against Him. Friend, this misplaced glory can be devastating. In verses 24 through 26, we're given a detailed account of how devastating this misplaced glory can be. For when one chooses the scheme or system of morality over the gospel... They may be able to clean up or, or for a break away from habits and hang-ups for a time. But as described there in verses 24 through 26, that clean-up is temporary. Because ultimately what comes back is that same demon who invites more demons. And maybe this time the demons of pride and false confidence join in. Rather than seeing their need and desperate dependence on Jesus, they begin to believe in themselves. How dangerous it is in the church when we stop pre- preaching Jesus and we preach the power of man. Friends, the truth needs to be clear. The only real cleanup comes from the gospel. The only lasting freedom comes from Christ. For where the Holy Spirit resides, demons cannot. Friends, there is no hope apart from Jesus. In Romans chapter 1, it says the gospel is the power of God. Salvation to everyone who believes. The question before each and every one of us sitting here is are we gathering in Christ or are we scattering through schemes? Friends, which kingdom are you serving? I'm blessed to say that this church for over 100 years has preached the gospel of Jesus Christ from this pulpit. And while we can get confident in that, And almost begin to puff out our chests and talk about what a faithful community of saints we are. We must do business with ourselves and ask, Am I believing or not? Because the reality is, each and every one of us must make a decision Whose kingdom am I serving? Whom am I praising? See, this short story is simply about two kingdoms. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. Both are strong. Both are powerful. But one is stronger. One is victorious in the end. And for each and every one of us, we must answer the question, which kingdom am I serving? I think about that statement as I think about the life of the one who replaced Moses. His name was Joshua. Constantly through his short book, we're reminded that he needed to take courage and be strong in the Lord came to a place where he realized he was, in many ways, standing alone. And Joshua looked out and he made this statement. He said, as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. Friends, we live in a day and age in which the world is pushing in. And unfortunately, the church is starting to follow the culture rather than being countercultural. The church is leaning on the systems and the structures and the what works of the culture rather than trusting the gospel. It's going to come down to each and every one of us to answer the question, what about me and my house? Whom am I serving? Friends, this is the question That Luke probes us to ask. Don't assume because you're in the household of God that the answer is already set. Look to Christ, rely upon his power, and celebrate his kingdom. Let's pray. Father as we close our Bibles as we step away from a text which has called us to evaluate where we stand it's easy for us to judge those out there when you are telling us to look inwardly God may we not be those who celebrate power but give glory to the wrong place May we be those who are captive by the glory and the power of Christ. May we sing His praises. May we honor His name. And may we be part of the gathering of others to share in singing His praises. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And God's people said,
0: This has been a podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Trenton, Michigan. For more information, please visit us online at fpchurch.tv.